Oh, Father, we lift our hearts up to You, Father, as an offering. We ask You, Lord, to fill us, Lord, with an appreciation overflowing for the great gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us. We also pray that You would fill our minds, Lord, with an understanding of Your Holy Word rightly divided and applied to our lives that we might walk in a manner worthy of our call. We also lift before You, Lord, our hopes and our desires We pray that they would be conformed unto the knowledge of you. We also lift up our expectations for who we are and ought to be and pray, Lord, that you would make us into the same image as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But most of all in this service, Lord, we commit ourselves to lift you up, to exalt your great name, to glorify you. And I pray on the praises of your people would be a throne for your majesty and through the confession of your church would be a proclamation of the gospel and through the obedience of your people would be a testimony of faith we pray lord that you would equip us in all these categories through the preaching of your word today recognizing that it is the spirit that uses these means it is not the ability of the minister or even the aptitude of the hearer it is the holy spirit enabling this word to be spoken and for it to be received that will do the work to glorify you beyond this service as fruit from it i pray that that would happen for your glory and name's sake dear jesus christ and it is in your name we pray amen, amen. praise the lord this morning i'd invite you to turn with me to hebrews chapter 9 It's such a great privilege and an honor to be able to open the Scriptures which have been sovereignly preserved through the ages for us that we might know the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray we only grow in the appreciation of that fact and never grow weary in the well-doing or that the familiarity of our time here would ever breed contempt. I want to apologize in advance for the state of my voice this morning. I'm trusting you'll have grace to hear me through this cold and God would have grace on me to be able to proclaim His Word in spite of it. I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of of the Word this morning with your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 9. Let us read, follow me as I read verses 1 through 15 today. Verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the, for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation verse 11 but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Praise the Lord for the promises and the revelation that we find in Jesus Christ which ties together so many what would otherwise have been to us, the unsuspecting, sinful observer, loose ends of redemptive revelation. Hebrews 9, 1-15 is an expose of the Old Covenant along the lines and pattern of what the author has done through the course of the eight chapters preceding it. And it will continue. Our author has thoroughly employed the thematic content of the covenants of old to reveal the communion and perfection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. The communion and the perfection existed in type and shadow before, but it is manifest in perfect fulfillment in the gospel today. Just as when this book was written, Jesus had come, had been crucified for sinners, had been raised from the dead, had ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, having been given a kingdom by the Ancient of Days. So He rules and reigns today in the communion and the perfection that is manifestly available in Him is every bit ours as it was the recipients of this letter and will be for every blood-bought believer who is gathered in from the four winds of heaven until He calls us all home and history is complete in the second coming of Christ. The arguments of the author of Hebrews recapitulate lesser to greater reasoning. Oftentimes you'll hear how much more, or if then, then how much more will it be thus and so in Christ? This way of arguing or revealing his point, making his case, is a use of a biblical, or is it use of biblical analogies, pictures, types, shadows, pieces of revelation of old to Draw, and he draws our attention by using them and then expands on them by saying, in Christ, the little bit of light that they had has now been magnified infinitely. Among these expositions, that is, concepts and categories of the Old Covenant that provided occasion to reveal the good news of the gospel are prophets, patriarchs, promises, priestly order, covenant, and today the theme of our text, ritual tabernacle worship. Ritual tabernacle worship, the ceremonial codes and law and worship of the tabernacle and temple of old are featured as metaphors and words prophetically and typologically that went before to declare what would come after, namely their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews draws exhaustively and precisely from the ceremonial duties of the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews proclaims the gospel in its comprehensive and theologically rich glory when he does so. He draws from things like the Day of Atonement proceedings all the way back in Leviticus to routine tabernacle maintenance as we see it detailed in the end of the book of Exodus. So from Leviticus to Numbers, the author proclaims Christ. These are not two of most people's favorite books that I hear when they're reading the scriptures. And it might not be the place you would first go for a devotional pick-me-up to get you through your difficult week. But yes, in the Pentateuch, in those more difficult passages to our foreign ears, like Leviticus and Numbers, are treasures of Jesus Christ, hidden for those who understand what the author of Hebrews knew to discover. The sufficiency and continuity of the Word of God is evident in the message of Hebrews. Some of the most neglected passages of Scripture are laced with priceless gospel treasures. And the book of Hebrews is like a code, a treasure map, or a cipher that opens up the Word of God so that we can see its beauty, its scope, its depth, its detail, its sophistication, its prophecy, and its priceless worth. This morning, as we endeavor to discover a little of this from Hebrews chapter 9, let me give you a heading and three major points. The author of Hebrews builds his case, emphasizing this morning three things. First, covenant regulations. Second, he emphasizes time of reformation. And thirdly, he underscores mediator extraordinaire. 
first covenant regulations, time of reformation, and the mediator, or our mediator, extraordinaire. The author of Hebrews builds his case, first of all, identifying aspects of old covenant regulation. Return with me to our text today in Hebrews 9.1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. You see, first covenant regulations and an earthly place of holiness. One thing that was part and parcel to the first covenant was that there was an earthly place, an external form, a touchstone in the natural of a spiritual reality. He's about to describe what that was. It was the tabernacle and the implements within it and the worship that attended it. He says, verse 2, for a tent was prepared. That would, be, that would refer to the tabernacle indeed. The first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So in our mind's eye, we can picture the tabernacle with its furniture, if you will. That's the first point in our main point today, the furniture or the outfitting, the implements that were there within the tabernacle itself. And he's going to identify a list of these, and he's begun with the lampstand table of showbread, and the table of showbread. We continue. It is called, verse 3, the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or you may recall the holy of holies. Verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Let me pause there for a brief note of commentary. You might think to yourself, wait, the altar of incense wasn't within the Holy of Holies. Am I missing something here? Not so much. It's just a way of speaking theologically. As we can see, and perhaps even this morning touch on a few points in Leviticus, where we see how the altar of incense was employed in the worship in the temple, the altar of incense was so associated with what went on in the Holy of Holies that in a manner of speaking, it was part of the worship order or that which took place within the holy place so that man might be found in favor with the holy God and his sins might be provisionally atoned for. So here we continue in this picture which lays out before us the furniture of the tabernacle. Altar of incense, Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was, so now these are things that were inside the Ark of the Covenant, a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he breaks with this aside. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 25. Why does the author include that little almost parenthetical statement, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, I would submit to you in part exactly because they, there were so many regulations and so many specifics, there was so much precision that was prescribed for the Old Covenant worship order. Just to give you a flavor of what should be in the back of our minds as the hearers of Hebrews, as no doubt his readers were, let me read to you a few verses from which he draws his picture. This is an example of one of the, uh, or example of directions for the use and the design of one of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, namely the lampstand. Verse 31, Exodus 25. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx, flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx, flower, on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, calyx of one piece with it under each pair, the six branches going out from the lampstand, their calyxics and their branches, shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, and shall be made with these utensils, with all these utensils, out of a talent of pure gold. 
and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Quite extensive, is it not? And that's just a few verses describing utensils and use of one of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. You see, the author simply doesn't have the time or space to give all the exquisite detail down to the craftsmanship, the use, the implementation, the purpose, and the ceremonial value of each of these things that he has listed. But he does summarize for us their main point and their main idea. He sums up in his text here that we don't have to realize every exhaustive detail to get this primary truth, that all of them are speak to the fulfillment that was to come, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think, if you will, and just as a brief overview, some of the uh, things that ought to be associated in our mind with these pieces of furniture. We just mentioned the lampstand. It's combined with the table of presents. You might know it as the table of showbread in your memory, where 12 loaves were placed and replaced weekly within the tabernacle. The lampstand itself, we just mentioned, had sensors and different uh, instruments to keep it burning. The priestly duties that were involved in tabernacle worship, the ritual worship, first covenant regulations, were extremely demanding, were thorough and exhausting. The priests themselves had to be about maintaining the temple order daily. Daily they had to maintain lighting the candlestick. Weekly they had to replace the showbread. There was a constant maintenance to make sure the people of God were in good standing. There was an extreme precision that was required of the entire priestly order. If you would so much as bring strange fire as it were before the Lord, what could happen to you and did happen to you at occasions in the Old Testament? God's judgment would come and you would be struck dead because you're out of order with God's specific, precise, detailed, complex order of worship in the first covenant. Uzzah touches the ark, he is dead in an instant. If the high priest wasn't thoroughly washed, wasn't properly attired, if he didn't do all of the things necessary to meet with the Lord, the glorious Shekinah, uh, a revelation of God, would not be a presence of favor, but instead one of immediate judgment as his feet would uh, be turned up and his head would hit the floor. He'd be struck dead in the presence of God if he didn't maintain accurately the temple order. What can this, uh, how can this apply to our text today? Well, certainly we can see that in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his ongoing work as our intercessor, that though it is infinitely more demanding than these Old Testament pictures are foretold, he nevertheless does it with perfection and to a T. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Other implements in the temple, the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, these were fixtures employed on the Day of Atonement, which we'll see in due course. Manna, symbolizing God's provision, which was typified by his food that was supplied, bread in the wilderness. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. There was Aaron's staff that budded, and if you recall, the reason his staff budded is because he was the one appointed, anointed, and called to be the only legitimate high priest at that time. Just as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was appointed high priest. He is the once for all high priest who is also the sacrifice for us. The exclusivity of the priesthood, typified by the budding rod, is personified in Jesus Christ. What about the tablets? They were the lawful demands. They were the law of God, the Ten Commandments, this perfect standard of righteousness that a holy God required. Or were the cherubim and the mercy seat. That was the locus, the place of God's meeting. The particular conditions were met there and only there for sinful man to meet with the holy God who revealed himself in fearful, glorious, 
an exclusive presence within that holy place. So this is the furniture of the first covenant regulations of the tabernacle. And these are some of the associations that the author expects us to have in our mind as he reveals the gospel. Secondly, under first covenant regulations, let's consider their function. How would these different implements that we've just detailed be employed in the worship order of first covenant regulation? To answer this question with an example, let us move to Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, we pick up on some of the instructions for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a pattern for the gospel. It is precisely paradigmatic. It establishes a paradigm of understanding for the atonement of sins, the redemption of the people, and through substitutionary sacrifice, how we can be justified. This was pictured in the sacrificial system of old, and we read of it in verse 11 of Leviticus 16. <clears throat> These instructions begin, or in process we read, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sign offering for himself. Verse 12. And he shall take a censer full of coals of the fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Where's Aaron going as he goes inside the veil? He's going to the holy place, the holiest place that is, the holy of holies. Verse 13, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So listen, so that he does not die. Do you see the altar of incense was employed to create this smoke? The smoke was brought in by a censer. That smoke provided a barrier because a sinful man could not come in contact with the holy God and live. This provided a degree of separation which preserved his life under these provisional conditions. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting. It goes on, verse 18 talks about the scapegoat. Then he shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar all around. Or excuse me, that comes a little later. The uh, scapegoat, he says, for instance, in verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. First covenant regulations included the function that the furniture would serve in the temple. And one of the functions was to accommodate the ceremonial worship of the Day of Atonement, which would provide a covering for the high priest himself, who was a sinner, and for the people, and even for the place in which all this happened. So much needed to be atoned. Why? Because all had come into corruption due to sin. Finally, under First Covenant regulations, we have furniture, function, and then frailties. Our author is keen to note in Hebrews chapter 9 that while these uh, conditions and while these provisions of the old covenant were indeed glorious insofar as they went, they had deficiencies, limitations. You can see this in the text that I just read. Examples of how the limitations and the alienation of man from a holy God was not fully transcended in this order. These first covenant regulations were not sufficient to unite man perfectly 
with the holy God. Something more was required. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the curse of sin was spiritual death. That would soon be followed for all and by physical death. And the promise of the gospel was communion, reuniting with the fellowship of a holy God and eternal life, freedom from that death. This alienation and this limitation of death itself could only be transcended in the one who was prophesied all the way back, to, back then, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, though he would bruise his heel. These frailties of the first covenant order, though they were insufficient in and of themselves, they, like the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, spoke of one who would come. There would be a high priest, of high priests, if you will, who would be markedly different. When he went into the holy place, he didn't get, go into a place that needed to be atoned for because it was mere creation and made with human hands. He went into a heavenly tent, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 8 last time we were there. Also, he went in, not as a sinner who needed to be atoned for, but as we just read, that he himself was sinless. Also, he went in providing not a sacrifice of blood, of blood from bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer that sanctifies merely for the purification of the flesh, but he went in with his own flesh and blood. He went in sacrificing himself. The frailties of the old covenant order are illustrated in Leviticus 16. Think of it. The sin offering for himself was required of the high priest in verse 10. Secondly, the incense cloud was necessary to shield the high priest from God's glory, let alone all the rest of the people. Do you remember the veil that Moses kept over his face? Even that residual reflective glory that was on Moses? The people could not see it and handle it. Do you remember the revelation of God on Mount Sinai? They begged that Moses would go and speak for them. They were fearful of the presence of God, and they knew that they would die if they were exposed to Him for any length of time. How could this limitation be transcended? Number three, there was a mercy seat that interposed, as it were, between the tablets and the people. That is to say that even the situation of the tablets within the Ark of the Covenant and then the mercy seat above them, upon which was sprinkled the blood of the atonement, was significant. Why? Because there was no way the people in their wicked hearts could ever keep the Ten Commandments. They were looking forward to a day when that law would be written on their heart, according to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 36. But in the meantime, those tablets stood as a testimony against them, and they needed a mercy seat in between. Alienation and limitation. We see furthermore in that the blood sprinkling wasn't a once and for all event. It was required routinely. And often it was required in order for the people to maintain a temporal, provisional good standing with the Lord. Also, we see that entry for the people into the holy place was strictly forbidden. There was only one who could go, the high priest himself. Entry was not allowed for any of the masses. And then finally, there was a scapegoat that we read of at the end. There was substitutionary atonement that was required. Yet again and again, each year, the scapegoat was sent out into the woods. And each year, as the nation was faithful to the commands of the first covenant regulations, thousands of animals would be sacrificed. Yet, their sin, in one sense, remained. Only in faith, in the coming Messiah, could they be justified. Only in Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, could they have true atonement. It was coming, all these regulations spoke of it, but it had not manifest in time as of yet. Secondly, major point, the author of Hebrews builds his case emphasizing time of reformation. This is what the old covenant was anticipating, prefiguring, looking forward to. This time of reformation is spoken of in verse 10 of our text in Hebrews 9 this morning. Backing up to verse, uh, or, uh, verse 10, or verse 9, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, 
and posed until the time of Reformation. So here we see an expectation of a welcome change. On the horizon, there will come a day where this old order, these first covenant regulations, will, will uh, be, be rendered obsolete in glorious fulfillment. The author makes the point of correspondence between what the old covenant prefigured and what the new covenant fulfilled in a creative way in this text. Now what I'm about to detail for you is called a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure refers to a Greek letter X. Um, It's in the shape of an X. And so basically it's the shape of ideas laid out in almost a poetic form. You're familiar with the rhyme scheme? I've gone over this. This occurs in Hebrews at other locations. But just to refresh your memory, you're familiar with the rhyme scheme maybe in English class where a certain rhyme would be identified by the letter A. And then when the next letter that rhymes with that appears, you'd have another A. So you have A-A-B-B. That would be a rhyme scheme. Well, a chiastic structure parallels ideas. It's not a rhyme, but it's a rhyming idea. And if you assign the first idea A, the second one B, the third one C, the fourth one would be C, the fifth one would be B, and the sixth one would be A. It's almost confusing, is it not? But you see it kind of makes like an arrowhead or an X-shaped structure. For further study, you could look into that a little bit. It's one of those areas of Scripture that I love to point out because it's just a genius sophistication in the literary beauty of the Word of God before us. So the two ideas I want to see or I want us to see first are in verses 9 and 10. Notice how verses 9 and 10 are parallel. So this would be, uh, in according to that little rhyme scheme idea, these would be ideas C and C paired together. It says, which is symbolic for the present age, verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. So the two corresponding and in some sense contrasting ideas are this. This arrangement and time of reformation. What does this arrangement refer to? It says that that would be, I submit to you, the first covenant regulations or the old covenant order as typified, represented by what we've just discussed. The furniture, the function, and the frailties of tabernacle worship. That was a temporary arrangement, but it's going to give way to a time of reformation. What about the gospel in all of this? In the confessions, sometimes there there have been occasions that I've highlighted where it's great summary language to help us understand the continuity of the gospel throughout the old covenant arrangement and through the new covenant time of reformation. Listen to chapter 7. Section 5 of the Westminster, for instance. Some beautiful summary sentences that help us identify the continuity of Scripture and the theme upon which the author of Hebrews touches. The authors say, This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. So those two categories in the language of Hebrews are the prior arrangement and the time of reformation. Covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. That's a great summary of what we learn in the book of Hebrews. The prior order, the arrangement of old, the first covenant regulations, they foresignified Christ to come. They did so through Many of the themes that the author of Hebrews picks up on and identifies their fulfillment in Christ. Promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, paschal lamb, ordinances 
in the ceremonial aspects of the old covenant law. So under the time of Reformation, we see this parallel idea in the arrangements between the two covenants. One was the arrangement of the old, which was provisional, but it looked forward to the gospel, to the coming of Christ, the time of Reformation. Okay, second parallel idea under time of Reformation. If we back up both directions from 9 and 10, let's see the parallel in verses 8, the beginning of verse 9, and verses 11, and the beginning of verse 12. In verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And then notice this parentheses, which is symbolic for the present age. So here's an idea. Again, it's going to correspond. <clears throat> this is an idea I just gave you of the arrangement of the old, but it's going to, co going to correspond with a, an idea in the time of Reformation. And this we pick up on in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, and notice another parenthesis, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he answer, entered once for all into the holy place. So in the time of Reformation, there is a distinct, we find a distinction between ages. We have the age that preceded the coming of Christ and the age that was inaugurated at the coming of Christ. In the age that preceded Him, the Holy Spirit actually taught the people, the faithful who understood by the old covenant order that there was something yet to come. The Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holy places, according to verse 8, was not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, says which is symbolic of the present age. This is the idea. So long as the old first covenant regulations stood and the prior arrangement had standing, so long as it had standing, there were yet limitations and alienation to some degree for God's people. There wasn't, as of yet, free access into the holy place. There wasn't, as of yet, the experience of communion in perfection with God the Father through Jesus Christ, the high priest who was to come. The Holy Spirit indicated through these temporal, external, and fading symbols and, prophecy, and, and prophetic pictures that something greater was to come. The something more, that, which is signified often in the text by how much more and language to the superlative that would be fulfilled in Christ. And then we find this in verse 11 again. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, it is through this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place. So I want to remind you, because it's, it parallels our series in Matthew, that this two-age distinction is not unique to the book of Hebrews. Do you question that the disciples ask, asked, which initiated the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. They said, as, <clears throat> as he sat on the Mount of Olives, in verse 3, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, and then proceeds the fifth discourse in Matthew. Notice the question. What will be the sign of the close of the age? This question relates to what Jesus had just told them, that the house would be left to them desolate, speaking to Jerusalem, and that of the temple structure itself, not one stone would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. This was significant. These signs signaled a difference in standing. No longer, at a particular time in history, no longer would the old covenant order have standing anymore. The regulations and the arrangement would be obsolete because it would be fulfilled and superseded in Christ. This idea of age of old and the age of Christ is there in Matthew 24 as well. And we see it taking shape through the course of the passage. 
the message, so long as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant had standing. That is the sign above the door, if you will, of the tabernacle and the temple by divine revelation. This is what the Holy Spirit meant to convey. A paraphrase might be, or an illustration could be, no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. You see, the disciples were dismayed and distraught, no doubt, when Jesus said, this temple is going to be utterly destroyed. But if they had eyes to see into the spirit realm, they could see that sign on it, as it were, so long as that temple order stood, no trespassing, except for the, holy, except for the high priest, one time a year. No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. If you try to go through the curtain without being the high priest, without the ceremonial cleanliness and purity, you will be struck dead. But there is coming a day when all of that will change. And in this new age, all who are in Christ will go through the veil into the holy place. This truly is the manifest glory of God revealed for us in typological form and fulfillment form in the book of Hebrews and prophetic form in Matthew 24. It's all through the New Testament. It's amazing indeed. What is the greater tent? If Christ is the high priest, what is the greater tent in which he does his great intercessory work? Well, again, we found this already declared in Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. Notice it's that same language. This is a tent or a place of meeting with God that is not bound to the external or the created order. It is a more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. This is the heavenly realm in which Christ even now sits, receive, having received a kingdom from the ancient of days, where he ever lives to make intercession for us, according to Hebrews 7, 25. Now, again, to parallel our Matthew text, this was prophesied, was it not? We saw this last week, Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then will all the tribes of the earth, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I submit to you, whatever else that prophetically means, it certainly uses directly, idea for idea, the imagery of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Ancient of Days receives the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus again prophesies this. He says to the uh, high priest that you will see the Son of Man coming and from now on you'll receive a kingdom. When Stephen himself prophesied and preached his sermon just before his martyrdom, he saw the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. The book of Hebrews opens with this very declaration. It says, he is the radiance, speaking of Christ, the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, when was that? On the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When was that? At his ascension. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So you can see that a new age has dawned with the presence of Christ. Thus, this time of reformation is the time of a sacrifice, a priest, a prophet, and a king, ruling and reigning, accomplishing atonement, and providing entrance for us into the Holy of Holies through His blood. Powerful indeed. Time of reformation, different arrangement, a different age, finally different agents. Agents meaning those who are appointed or anointed by God to carry out the task and also the duties that they will perform. The two corresponding verses that we'll touch on for this final point under Reformation are verses 7 and 12 in Hebrews 9. But into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, the high priest, into the second only, the high priest goes. And he 
but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Then verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, speaking of Christ, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is powerful. The prior arrangement in the time of Reformation is seen in correspondence and in contrast by agency. The former high priest was limited. So far he was a sinner. He only went once a year. It needed to be repeated. The second or the final high priest, Christ himself, entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice the points of correspondence, four of them. But once a year under the old order, once and for all in the new. Once a year versus once and for all. Second point of correspondence, the blood of goats in the new covenant by means of his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats versus the means of Christ's own blood. Third correspondence, the priest offered for himself, Jesus offers himself. Final point of correspondence in these two verses. This was merely for the unintentional sins of the people, but Christ, his atonement is for an eternal redemption. Praise the Lord. In Numbers 15, perhaps the limitation of the Old Covenant is most striking in this passage. This is fearful language. And I'm not sure exactly all that it means under the old order, except to say that there were limitations and distinctions as to the type and nature of sin and how and when it could be covered. Numbers 15, 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat year old for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Verse 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Verse 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, which of course means intentionally, brazenly. Whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Brothers and sisters, I confess to you, if I had been alive then, I would have been cut off from the people, because I myself have sinned on countless occasions with a high hand. Where was there hope for me, for you? If your sins are more than those that are just unintentional, find that hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, under the old order, he offers a sacrifice for himself and then only for the unintentional sins of the people. But in the new order, the one that has flourished in Jesus Christ, into which we have been born when we were born again, by means of Christ's own blood, he secures eternal redemption. This isn't just for a time. It isn't only provisional. It won't have to be repeated. It's not only for unintentional sins. It's eternal redemption. All sins, past, present, and future. The repentant believer are covered by the powerful, precious, efficacious, overflowing grace found only in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Finally, and in closing this morning, the author of Hebrews builds his case, emphasizing our mediator extraordinaire. We saw how the high priests had limitations, and we've seen how Jesus Christ surpasses them, and infinitely so. Notice in the final few verses how he expands on this. Verse 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. 
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Mediator extraordinaire, I submit to you. Numbers 19, 16 through 17. Very briefly, I find it helpful to touch on these verses because they are in the background and there's an assumption of their understanding in the text. Numbers 19, 17. For the unclean they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who are there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening he shall be clean. So we see in this text um, an allusion, or in our text today, an allusion to the text I just read. For the sprinkling of defiled persons, if, uh, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, you see the reference there is to specific provisions to maintain your ceremonial clean, cleanliness if you came in contact with the dead. So if you were to touch something that had died, it rendered you unacceptable before God's presence, you needed to go through a procedure to become ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean again, so the ashes would be mixed with the water, combined with the sacrifice, it would be applied to you, and then you would be reinstated as pure, externally speaking, ceremonially speaking. This, the author of Hebrews refers to as purification of the flesh. It did accomplish that much. It accomplished a purification of the external form to represent something in the future, but it was just that. It was a ceremony, a type, an analogy, a prefiguring. But he goes on, verse 14, to contrast by glorious fulfillment. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the old order had power to render you ceremonially clean if you accidentally touched a dead thing. The new order, through Christ's blood, renders you truly clean from your dead works. The false things that you've trusted in, the rebellious ways that you've tried to earn your own salvation, gain peace, good standing, favor, hope, anything, those are all dead works. And the blood of Jesus Christ can purify our conscience from anything and everything that stands between us and our redemption, our atonement, our regeneration. And when He touches us with the power of His blood, we now serve the living God, not just ceremonially clean, but justified, purified of our sin in the process of sanctification, looking forward to being glorified with Him with eternal life forever. Praise the Lord. We can see why Christ is the mediator extraordinaire because the power of his blood so far surpasses any temporal provisions of the old order. The Trinity is also in view. Let me hasten to add in these verses. Notice verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who Christ, God the Son, who through the eternal spirit, who's this? God the Spirit. Offered himself without blemish to whom? To God the Father. The triune nature of the Godhead. We sang of this today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We see in Hebrews itself that the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offering himself without blemish to God is the satisfactory conditions for eternal redemption. It's the means of his blood in this particular order. And the great and glorious mystery of the Trinity, and only there can salvation be accomplished. I recently, as the Lord's providence would have it, 
I was interacting a little bit out on the Ham farm with a Muslim who was fresh over to the United States from Palestine. And he asked me if I was a Christian. I suspect because he had been witnessed to by Dan Boy over there before I got to him. And he also asked about my beard. So anyways, that gave us an inroad to talk about the Trinity, believe it or not. So in his broken English and my struggling to communicate, I told him why there is no hope in Islam. It's not because the West is really mad because your fundamentalists are blowing up you know, clubs and airports. That's not the ultimate reason why it's evil. That is evil, of course. But the ultimate reason why there is no peace in Islam, why there is no salvation in Allah, is because there is no redemptive order in the Godhead. There is no mediator. There is only Allah, who, yes, is just, capriciously merciful. There's no way to be assured of connection with him. He does not condescend to man. So man is there struggling to reach him all the time, doing what? Nothing but dead works, the five pillars of Islam. You know, the Hajj and the five prayers and everything else that they're required to do. All these things are what? Filthy rags. There is no mediator. There is no trinity. There is no Christ. There is no salvation for sins. So I tried to give him this good news. I told him that there was a day when Abraham took his son up to a hill. God had told him to sacrifice him. But a lamb was provided in the bush, a ram in the bush. And that was a sacrifice, a substitute. But it would not be sufficient. But there would come a day when a father would lead his son up the hill of Calvary, and this time he would not stay his hand of execution, but would kill him, and it would please the Lord to crush him. And that sacrifice, and only that sacrifice, is the substitutionary atonement whereby anyone can be saved. Brothers and sisters, these are not heady concepts for the Dutsy Halls of Seminary. These are true aspects of the gospel that are understood in order for us to accurately represent, understand, and indeed to have a basic assent to, to be saved. And so we look to Hebrews to give us the structure, the beauty, the glory, the power of the gospel. Everyone, deep within their heart, brothers and sisters in Christ, the post-Eden reality of the death and the curse of sin plagues the unregenerate man. And it plagues him eternally, unless until he repents of his sin. Man, despite every stupid, obtuse, rebellious, petulant, childish attempt to lie to himself, cannot escape that intrinsic sense of alienation and shame. He might uh, try to buy time, try, might try to self-medicate, distract himself, lie to himself, invent false religions, erect high places, you know, christen institutions, individuals, and any idea or concept to make it go away. But all of these only heighten his culpability. He is desperate to find a scapegoat, a mediator. Where can I roll my sins onto? Who can take them and be sent into wilderness that I may be justified? Let us remember that those who are in Christ you and I, if you believe, if you confess faith in Him today, if you have been regenerated by His sovereign hand, have the only answer to that question. The answer to that question is before us today, pictured in this form. God left us with just a few arrangements in the new covenant. And one of the regulations, if you will, is that we would remember at the Lord's table in this supper what His blood and what His body represents. If our perfect high priest had not through his blood secured our eternal redemption, when it was torn and broken and bled out on Calvary, we would have no reason to gather. We would have no hope eternal, no reconciliation with a perfect holy God, and nothing but hopeless, godless, and hellish future. This is the truth that we realize in communion today. Remember how precious the blood of Christ is for your own sins, dear believer, as we celebrate communion today.
And then I'd encourage you to join me in proclaiming him to a lost world. Let us all make known to those who are lost in their sins that hope and salvation is found in one place, one place alone, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let us transition in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you that the blood of our sacrificed lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was a sufficient sacrifice to cover, to atone, and to pay for our sins. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you received that sacrifice as sufficient payment for our horrible, Lord, decrepit, wretched hearts, our rebellion, our sinfulness. Thank you. Jesus, it is your work on Calvary that we affirm and assent to today that is the only means of our salvation. It is in you that we celebrate and trust. I thank you that the Spirit has given unto us to make these things come alive into our hearts. And through his activity and our souls can use the very means of this service and communion this morning to write the truth of the gospel indelibly on the tablets of our very souls, our hearts. I pray that you would do this, Lord, so that we, Lord, might shine all the brighter in this day of darkness, triumph, ch uh, championing the triumph of Jesus Christ over death, sin, and the grave, and holding out as heralds the only way of salvation, the shed blood of the high priest, the mediator extraordinaire, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.